Anyway, it is so good uh, to, to be together and to share in this time. And, and, and last week is when it hit me. Brentley shared something that just struck me uh, deeply for a couple of days. He said, how well do we listen to Jesus? How well do I listen to him? How well do I, do I uh, consider what he has actually said to me? Do I take the time to listen and to see how it might apply to my own life and context? I mean, truth be told, I think more about my vacation or my retirement or a TV show than I do about Jesus. God put that question on my heart last week, and I wonder what kind of seeds he might be planting in your hearts during this season. Today I'm going to listen to Jesus expressing another self-revelatory statement and consider how that self-revelation relates to us today. We're looking at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's just dive right into it. The scripture will be on the screen behind me. As I read, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, back in Jesus' day, there was a debate going on as to why a child could be born with an illness or a disability. Some misunderstood the passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and so they thought that Uh, It was because of the parents' sins. God was judging a sin from one of the parents that made this happen. Others embraced the clarification that Ezekiel brought when Ezekiel said, the person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parents' sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Those who held to that particular perspective believed that it was a sin the child did somehow in the womb. So the disciples and Jesus are walking along, They see a rather familiar fixture, the blind man who'd been there all of his life. He was a beggar. And so they thought this was a great opportunity to ask their teacher his perspective on this perplexing question. And so we read, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. I mean, think of the contrast there. Here's this man who's known nothing but darkness all of his life. And now Jesus, the light of the world, comes to him. And he's about to bring light for the first time into this man's life. So verse 6. Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Jesus could have just spoken the healing, but it was the Sabbath day. He was making a point, so he worked. He worked the mud and put it on the man's eyes to get the religious leader's attention, get them talking. Jesus told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now, the rest of this chapter, which I'll leave for you to read, is a marvelous story of how the man was miraculously enabled to see the light. Not only was he enabled to see the light of day, but he was also enabled to see the light of Christ. He saw who Jesus is, and he worshipped him. Now, those who claimed they could see, they could see the light of day, but couldn't see the light of Christ, were proclaimed to actually be blind. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus made this claim to be the light of the world. The first time, he said, was in a large group of people at the Feast of Tabernacles. You might remember it. Brentley mentioned it last week. In John 8, 12, it was the same day that Jesus had said to the people, 
that if they came to him, streams of living water would flow from them. So on that same day, he said this, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk to, have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. A few verses later, John tells us that Jesus taught these things while he was teaching in the place that was close to the treasury. Important detail for us to consider. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. The people were thanking God for the past, the way he brought them through the wilderness, provided all their needs for the present, for the way he provided their needs through the harvest, and for the future, the way he provided their needs by pouring out the Holy Spirit and by becoming their light. Both Zechariah and Isaiah spoke about the great day of the Lord when God would come and be their everlasting light and their God would be their glory. Their sun would never set again and the moon would wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. So these passages, God makes the promise that just like he did in the wilderness, remember the pillar of fire at night? Can you imagine what that was like, shining light into the darkness? Just as he did for them in the wilderness, providing everything they needed, including light in the pitch darkness, he was going to do it again. When he returned, he would be their light to show them the way. So to symbolize this promise of light, four massive candlesticks were placed in the court of women right beside the treasury. These candlesticks were lit every night of the feast to remind the people of God's promise to be their light. The Mishnah states that the strength of the light from these candlesticks was so great that every courtyard in Jerusalem was illumined when they were lit. Can you imagine what that was like? It's hard for us to imagine because we live with all these electrical lights, you know. But for them, in the midst of the usual darkness, light. You could stand outside and look down the street in the middle of the night. You could see all the way down the street. Can you imagine what it was like to be outside of the city and look and see this thing glowing on the hill? This was an amazing thing. Nothing throughout the year could compare with that moment or compare with the message it proclaimed. What a thrilling day it would be when God himself comes to his people and becomes their light. So on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood next to those candles and declared, I am the light of the world. That's an outrageous claim. <laughs> How could he say, was he actually saying that he is God in the flesh coming to be their light as, it was, as he promised? Well, the Pharisees said, you can't say that. You don't have the right testimonies. You don't have the right backing. You don't have the right, uh, the right proof for that. But Jesus did say that. I am, he said. It's an emphatic, and it points to the way God revealed himself to Moses of the burning bush. I am the light of the world. And as was his pattern, Jesus was using a physical reality that everyone knew to point to a spiritual reality everyone needed to know. John knew this, and so in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 of his gospel in the prologue, he writes these words. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to all people was coming into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He's not a light of the world. He is the light of the world. That means that those who have Jesus have the light and they have the life. 
those who don't have Jesus have darkness and death. Life, according to the scriptures, is a life that is in connection with God's life for eternity. Death, according to the scriptures, is a life that we know in this world that is not connected to God's life for eternity. There's no middle ground. It's either life and light, or it's death and darkness. And as the light of of the world, Jesus pushes back the darkness, all darkness, to reveal what is true about our lives, our situation, about who he is, and about who we are as well. Some years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to China to help train uh, Chinese pastors in spiritual formation practices that they could then carry on to their, their congregations. On the first day that we were to meet, I arrived to the room early to prepare the room, and I found it was a basement room with no windows, and uh, it was so dark that I really couldn't see my hand in front of my face. So I figured that every culture puts the light switches where my culture puts the light switches. So I just walked into the room. And for five minutes, I walked around the perimeter of the room with my right hand sweeping the wall like this and my left hand sweeping out in front of me trying to find the things I was going to walk into. I bumped into things I had no idea what they were. You know, what is this? Why is this here? And I kept tripping and stumbling. Finally, about five minutes later, the first participant arrived and he showed me that the light switches are outside of the room on the other side of the hall. Point well taken. All right. But when the lights came on, That's when I saw the truth of my situation. I saw what was actually going on where I was. Oh, that's what I was bumping. What is that? (laughs) Oh, that's the way the room's arranged. That's the way it's supposed to be. See, like the blind man in John chapter 9, without Jesus, we spend our lives groping our way through the darkness, trying to interpret what we're bumping into without any real awareness of what it actually is. But when Jesus arrives, the lights turn on, and suddenly we see things that we didn't see before. And we are empowered to understand truths we could never, ever grasp on our own. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in The Weight of Glory. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It was an outrageous claim. But he then made an unbelievable promise. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Scriptures reveal that there were all kinds of groups of people that were out there. There were the crowds that followed him. There were that, that came when he when he showed up in their territory. They made a crowd. There were those that traveled. Excuse me, traveled with him. That kind of changed their schedule around to be able to be with him for a season. But then there were those who followed him. To follow Jesus is to put one's whole trust in the truth of his words, and to imitate him by obeying his teaching within our own context. To follow him. Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever trusts me and seeks to imitate me and obey me will carry the light of life in them. God himself, the Holy Spirit, making a residence in the heart of a human being. The life Jesus offers is a life that does not stop. 
It's an eternal life spent in relationship with the giver of life. It's a life that is different from the one that we know in this world, different not just in quantity, but so much more in quality. Jesus' statements, his teaching, and his miracles did exactly what he said they would do. They divided people. There were some that said he was a great man, some who said he was a great prophet, and some who said he was the Messiah, even though the religious leaders were trying to tamp that idea down by threatening to throw anyone who said that out of the synagogue. When people asked, who is Jesus? These different groups came up with different answers. But what I think is interesting is that the question, who is Jesus, actually sheds light on another question. Who am I? Chapter 9 of the Gospel of John has four different responses to Jesus. Those who were part of the crowd that day were confused. They weren't sure who Jesus actually was, and so they whispered among themselves, not being willing to come to a conclusion on their own. They just kept talking about it. They just kept discussing it, not coming to a conclusion. While the crowds were confused and the religious leaders were in conflict, those leaders made decisions. They knew in their hearts what they believed about this Jesus, but those decisions weren't the same, and so they had to talk about it. Some people said, you know... uh, God would never use a sinful person, and, this, and Jesus is breaking the Sabbath law, therefore he's sinful. Others would say, God would, never, yeah, God would never use a sinful person to do great works like this, therefore Jesus must be approved by God. Rather than act on their conclusions they made, they decided to argue among themselves. While the crowd was confused and the Pharisees were in conflict, the parents found themselves cornered. They saw what had happened to their son, but they, were, they knew that they would be thrown out of the synagogue if they said the wrong thing about Jesus. And so being fearful of what others might think of them if they aligned too closely with Jesus, they were silent and they passed the buck and they said, our son's old enough to answer for himself, you ask him. Then there's the healed man himself. You can watch as the sun rises on his new day and the light dawns. He begins to understand more and more what's going on. When he was first asked by the people who did this to him, he said, well, it was the man Jesus. And then when the religious leaders asked, he said, well, he's a great prophet. And when they came to him and asked again, he had seen enough. He made a decision. He stood his ground. He looked them in the eye and he said, do you want to become his disciples too? Yeah, that didn't go over very well with him. (laughs) As a result, he was cast out of the synagogue. And from an outsider's perspective, it seemed as though this blind man had lost it all. But I don't think that's what he thought. I think he had picked up Paul's perspective in Philippians 3. He believed that what they were offering was garbage compared to what he had found because he said this one phrase. He said, all I know is I was once blind, but now I see, and the only difference is him. When this light broke into the world, there were four responses. The people were confused. They just kept questioning and talking. They didn't make a decision. The Pharisees were in conflict, and they argued instead of acting on what they knew to be true, what, what they had decided to be true. The parents, they were conflicted, concerned, fearful about what others would think of them if they said the wrong thing about Jesus. But the one who entered the light, he grew in confidence. He did not waver in his growing belief, no matter how much pressure was applied. And this confidence was later confirmed in verse 38. When he professed Jesus as Lord and worshipped him. That is huge when you read that in the Gospels. Our answer to the question, who is Jesus, 
actually gives us insight into the question, who am I? Confused, conflicted, cornered, or confident? In a group of this size, present in this room and online today, I know that uh, all four of those groups are represented today in the people who hear my voice. So I wonder, if you are on the fence today, if you are on the fence because you can't seem to come up with enough conclusions and you just want to keep talking about it, or you're on the fence today because you just need to argue with other people about it, try to get more clarity, or maybe you're on the fence today because you're afraid of what others will think if you say too much about Jesus. For whatever reason, if you're on the fence today, what's keeping you there? What's stopping you from following Christ? Jesus said we either feel our way through the darkness or walk in ever-increasing light. Those who follow me, he said, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how well do we listen to and wrestle with the things Jesus has said? We take the time to hear him out, to feel it deeply, to hear him in the context in which he intended it. And in what way might God be planting seeds in your own heart? If something keeps coming back to you, don't ignore it. That's a seed the Holy Spirit is planting. How might you water it? How might you water someone else's seed? Imagine what would happen. We start taking Jesus at his word, watering the seeds that he's planted in our hearts. Would you please pray with me? Lord, it was at that Feast of Tabernacles that you said that you would come and that you would bring living water to flow from within us. You said that when we follow you, we will possess the light of life. Our scripture clearly teaches that the change you want to make in us, the change is from the inside out. And so today, Lord, we express our innermost desire to follow you, to orient our entire lives to your light, to trust what you tell us, and live by what you reveal. We express our faith and our belief, Lord, because we know we're going to fail this. But when we do fail, your grace remains and your mercies are new every morning. So resting on the confidence of your love for us, secure in the truth of your relentless work in us, Lord, help us to see your light. Help us to take the time to do the listening we need to do so we can experience what your light reveals. Help us to turn toward the truth that we know, to learn to abide more fully in you, and so act in ways that affirm that truth, your truth in our lives. Oh Lord, who else, who else could love us like this? Who else could transform us from the inside out? Who else could do this kind of work? Only you, our holy God, in whose name we pray. Amen.